symbol. Uh, it's, it's not some distortion of the Walmart smiley face, it's symbol. Uh, it's, it's not some distortion of the Walmart smiley face, it's our letter N. And it is being spray painted on homes of followers of Jesus in the northern Iraqi city of Mosul um, to indicate that believers in Jesus live there. The N stands for Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. And in their genocidal elimination of Christians from that city in northern Iraq, Mosul, Muslim terrorists have marked each Christian-owned institution and building with this letter for the extermination of people living there and the expropriation of their belongings. You know, a little more than a decade ago, Mosul was home to 60,000 Christians. Now there are none. ISIS told them that they had to convert to Islam and pay a, pay a penalty or leave the city with nothing or die. Stories are told, I was reading of them this week, stories are told on their exodus of, of the city that uh, the women would be taken into a separate, um, uh, like a tractor trailer uh, rig, the back part of the, of the tractor trailer that was set up for them to be modestly but thoroughly searched by ISIS women and any money, any jewelry was confiscated for ISIS. And so they left Mosul with nothing. Um, here's an image of one of those uh, doorposts in the city of Mosul. Of course, this image of Egyptian Christians beheaded for their faith haunts all of us who have seen it. Um, these are terrible stories, but they are not new. Um, from the beginning of the history of the church, it's often a history of suffering and persecution. We've, we've been tracking it through our study of the book of Acts. From the very beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 4, the believers were threatened. In Acts chapter 5, there were beatings. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred. In chapter 8, there was widespread persecution that drove believers from the city. In chapter 9, a plot was hatched to kill Paul. In chapter 12, James is killed and Peter is arrested. In chapter 13, there's mob violence against the believers. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned and left for dead. In chapter 16, Paul is imprisoned and beaten. In chapter 17, there's another riot. In chapter 18, Paul is accused and brought before authorities. That same Paul, whose name shows up again and again and again in the persecution stories of Acts, would, would later write this verse. He would say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, what if it comes to us? What if persecution comes to us? Here at North Wake, the question takes on a more immediate slant. What if we go to it? What if we send out our, our, our young families and our singles to, to places like China and India and Ethiopia and Kenya where persecution is already happening? What if we send them there and they become the persecuted? 
And there are North Wake families and singles in every one of those countries and many others. When persecution comes to us either here or there, will the persecutors prevail? Will we be found faithful? You know, these questions are more real to me than they ever have been. And um, I think Acts 19, where we are in our study of Acts, is given to us to give us needed perspective and hope for us on that day. So if you want to open up your Bibles there to Acts chapter 19, um, we'll look at the back part of that passage together. Before we do that, I want to tip my hand as to what I think the hope is that we are looking for in Acts 19. I want you to be on the lookout with me for it as we read the chapter together. And that is that uh, when our faith is threatened and opposed, we need to simply remember this great truth. Our God is greater. Our God is greater. And that, as I understand it, is the great lesson from this section in Acts 19. So we'll start in verse 8, but let me pray for us first, okay? Lord, have mercy on us now by your Spirit. Apply your word skillfully and powerfully and even irresistibly to our lives. Undergird us with, a, with a, an awareness, an unshakable belief in your greatness in the face of all opposition so that we might be found faithful on that day. We ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. All right. Um, starting in verse 8 of Acts 19. We're following the, the journey, the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's in the city of Ephesus, and it says, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way is uh, just a, a, a tag given to Christianity in the first century, the way. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So for three months, Paul is reasoning and persuading um, with Jews in the synagogue about the kingdom. And you realize that these things take time. Not everybody their first conversation believes, and Paul is in there for the, for the duration. For three months, he's arguing, debating, persuading, reasoning. Um, and so Paul's withdrawal from that synagogue, it, it's not seen as a concession, I don't think. I think it's strategic, because he ends up in the hall of Tyrannus, and from there he taught daily for two years. Tyrannus simply means tyrant. So those of you who are students, and you need to know that there's, you're not alone. There's a long history of professors who are, who are tyrannical that God used for His glory, okay? You've not been singled out for special treatment. But for two years, this guy opens up his lecture hall to the Apostle Paul, and imagine if you sat daily under the teaching of the Apostle Paul for two years. Um, this... This has the result of the word spreading throughout all of Asia among both Jews and Greeks. I guarantee you, this is not what the opposition in the synagogue had in mind two years earlier when they ran Paul out. Okay. They closed the door. 
God opened a wider one. Clearly, I want you to see today, God is greater than all religious opposition. He is greater. You know, though they may have temporary gains, such as evicting Paul from the synagogue, the spread of the gospel is an unstoppable thing. That's why we're promised that around the throne room of God, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because the love of God is that great and His power is that unstoppable. And perhaps the most stunning example of that in our day is what happened, has happened in China. And I've shared these numbers with you before. In, in 1949, the new communist regime ran out all of the Christian missionaries. The church was about a million members in China at that time. And so under communist rule, now some 60-some-odd years later, there are now 163 million Christians in China. Okay. Um, consider what's happening in Saudi Arabia. A recent article in Christianity Today says that uh, Saudi Arabia is a land of 28 million people where Islam is the only permitted religion. There is zero freedom of religion in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Consequently, official sources list the country as 100% Muslim, but... Saudi Arabia is one of many Middle Eastern countries that have imported millions of poor foreigners to work in menial jobs in their country. Many of those immigrants are African and Asian Christians, such that even though they have zero right to practice their faith in Saudi Arabia, even in private, the article says, exist they do such that Saudi Arabia's Christian population may be as many as 5% of the whole, perhaps 1.5 million believers God in His great sovereignty has placed in that nation okay. as poor houseworkers and manual laborers. Okay. These things happen because our God is greater. Listen to what Psalm 95 said. This is, this is beautiful. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Our God is greater. You know, once the door to Asia was closed to Paul by the Holy Spirit. You remember back in chapter 16, he wanted to go there and the Holy Spirit forbid it. But now it is wide open and all Asia hears. In the book of Acts... It is God who opens and closes nations to the gospel, not despots like Kim Jong-un or the Saudi royal family. This is God's doing. He is greater. Okay. Now, verse 11 says that God was doing extraordinary miracles, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. All right. Okay. I admit, that's just slap weird, okay? There's no way around it. It sounds like something that you would see on Sunday morning TV, right, where you get your free anointed prayer cloth. And I, when I went down the webpage for this advertisement, it says, so why is this prayer cloth different than the vast majority of other prayer cloths out there from other sources and various ministries? The reason is that this prayer cloth is anointed according to Scripture, 
And the anointing that is upon my life and upon this ministry is released through obedience when we act on the Word of God. God Almighty has ordained it so. This prayer cloth is designed and sent out according to the Holy Scriptures, infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, though the prayer cloth is free, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, they do accept PayPal. So um, that's always there. What is going on here? Okay. And are these two things the same? Is what happens in Acts 19 what happens on these websites and on Sunday morning televangelists? And I, I want to point out to you just several, uh, several key differences um, between them. First of all, you notice when you read this passage, Paul seems passive here, okay? He's not got an infomercial saying, here's my anointed prayer cloth, my sweaty tent-making rag. Get yours here. He doesn't have a little side business. He's making tents and doing prayer cloths. Paul, there's no initiative recorded at all in this passage from Paul uh, to cause this to happen. And... There are no donations solicited at any time. I'll just point that out. Luke says, these are extraordinary miracles. Now, what's a miracle? It's extraordinary. So these are extraordinary, extraordinary things happening, right? They are not common, even in the world of miracles, these involuntary kinds of miracles where, where the, the performer of the miracle is almost unaware, it seems. And did I mention, there's no money solicited, okay? It's different than what's going on on these websites and on Sunday mornings for a number of reasons. It is very, very rare what's going on here. There are only two slightly comparable things that happen in the New Testament. Um, do you remember the story where Jesus is in the crowd and a woman who'd suffered long came up and thought, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed? And she was. And then earlier in Acts, there's a situation where people are being placed by the roadside in the hopes that if Peter's shadow would just fall on them, they could be healed. Um, so you have one incident in Jesus' life and ministry, one in the Apostle Peter's, and one in the Apostle Paul's where these kinds of things happen. Um, indeed, these are extraordinary miracles performed by Jesus and two of the great apostles. John Stott says, um, the wisest attitude to the sweat rag miracles is neither that of the skeptics who declare them spurious or that of the mimics who try to copy them like those American televangelists who offer to send to the sick handkerchiefs which they have blessed, but rather of Bible students who remember that Paul regarded his miracles as his apostolic credentials. Maybe this is what Paul's talking about when he writes to the Corinthian church and says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This is, what's happening here is a collision of desperate faith and amazing grace. Okay. These are people whose friends and family were untreatably ill or demonically oppressed. And you get a sense that out of desperation, a scenario like this might have unfolded. Paul's working in his tent-making shop, right? His day job. He gets done. He wipes his brow with his sweat rag. He throws it down the table. He goes to his night job 
which is preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And this was his pattern while he was there. There were some with a sick son or daughter or brother or sister or mother or father who in desperation, they thought, you know, if we could just get the rag to touch the skin of the Apostle Paul who preaches Jesus, we could be healed. Our daughter could be healed. And so I envisioned them sneaking into Paul's tent-making shop. They find the rag. They take it home. And in faith and amazing grace, they're healed. And then the next day, Paul comes into his tent-making shop, and he's like, where did I put those rags? What happens to my rags? Okay. We haven't, it, this, was, this was not Paul marketing this. Okay. This is condescending grace and desperate faith. If you want to emulate anything here, it's not the handkerchiefs and the aprons, it's the faith. It's desperate faith that even a shadow of the grace of God will heal. God honors their faith, just as Jesus did the woman who touched the hem of his garment. Clearly, God can do and does do odd and unexpected things. Our God this day is still greater than sickness and evil spirits. We are right to trust him to still do greater miracles. Jesus encouraged his disciples and said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And Jesus points us to prayer as the source of miraculous power of God flowing through the life of a believer. So, if you are the one who stole Rob Craig's sweaty biking socks, okay, want to encourage you, probably ought to bring those back. You might get something other than a healing from those socks. So, just bring them back. But let's ask God for miracles, okay? He does them. Don't hesitate. You got sick friends, pray like mad. Ask God for great things. He does them. He honors the slightest bit of faith. Now, if things couldn't get any stranger in our passage, look what happens next. Uh, there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists, and that tells you where this story is going right there. Okay? This is going to be a curious story. And they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Um, you know, Ephesians had a, had a high uh, cultural value on magic. It was the Hogwarts of their day, okay? And... Uh, John Paul Hill describes how these Jewish exorcists worked. Um, they were held in high esteem because of their Jewish religion and the strangeness of their Hebrew incantations. Magicians and charlatans were omnipresent in the culture, offering various cures and blessings by their spells and incantations, all for a financial consideration. The more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was deemed to be. So if they can tag on the name of Jesus onto their incantation, all the better. Okay. 
And that's what they're doing here. It's kind of a Jesus name dropping that they're trying to do, even though they had no personal faith in Jesus. And clearly, by the way that they phrase what they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. It's clear that Paul's power doesn't come from Paul, but from the name of Jesus. Paul is trusting in Jesus when the miracles are worked. It is Jesus, not magic, that's happening here. This, I think, is why when people would say, as they did in Corinth, I follow Paul. It drove Paul nuts. His authority was not in him. It was a derived authority from Jesus. Jesus did the miracles. Well, they say this incantation of Jesus' name that Paul preaches to this man with a demon, these seven sons of Sceva do, and the evil spirit answers them. He says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. One man overpowers seven. Clearly, we are to understand this to be a real demonic spirit that has taken control of and is empowering this man. And it's a striking contrast. You just touch Paul's sweaty, sweaty work rag, and the demons are driven out. And here, one demon drives out seven false prophets. Okay. Clearly, clearly, the name of Jesus is not magic that can be wielded by anyone. It's not like that State Farm commercial, you know, where you, you say... Uh, like a good neighbor, stay farm is there, and shazam, you're rescued from whatever happens because you said the jingle, right? Um, no. Jesus' name does not work that way. When Paul heals in Jesus' name, he is trusting in and acting on behalf of Jesus. Jesus does the healing. Um, and this story, this amazing story that happens here, um, it begins to spread, and it becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Think about that for a minute. Why was the name of Jesus extolled when a demon beats up seven false priests? We'll come back to that. Also, many of those were now, who are now believers, so they're believers in Jesus, they came confessing and divulging their practices, evidently secret practices that these believers in Jesus had. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Why was the name of Jesus so exalted by a demonic possessed man beating up a bunch of false priests. I would say it's because that demon was doing Jesus' bidding, that they understood that what happened there was because of Jesus' name exalted over that demonically oppressed man, and he was responsible for that. I know no other reason why the name of Jesus would be exalted unless Jesus was ruling. He was greater than that demon. 
The demon-possessed man serves God's purposes. Jesus is greater. And the people know that this story is really not about seven false priests. It's not even about a demon. It's about Jesus, who's Lord over all, who's greater than all. And so now as they sense the greatness, the awesomeness of Jesus, to continue to dabble in magic arts as believers in Jesus is silly. Beyond silly, it could very well be downright dangerous because they would know that this God tolerates no rivals. Isaiah had said, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory. And they did not want to provoke him, no matter what the cost. They wanted to be all in with this God who's greater. They weren't going to hedge their bets. And so they burned all their scrolls. They brought all their magic scrolls and burned them, and they were valued at a tremendous value, 50,000 pieces of silver. It's hard to translate that into our day, but it's, it's reported here because it's sizable. So if it was a drachma, which was a common silver coin that represented a day's wage for a laborer, today let's say our laborer made $100 a day. It's not a lot of money. But if there were 50,000 days at $100 a day value that was burned, do the math, that's $5 million worth of scrolls that went up in smoke there, which seems extreme, but if their God is greater, anything less makes absolutely no sense. Now, it's interesting, these were believers who were divulging their secret kind of backup spiritual practices they had. They were still dabbling in magic arts, probably they had from before they were believers. And uh, Christians can have this kind of stuff in our lives. Uh, could be actual magic arts, dark arts kind of stuff that's left over from our BC days, but it could also just be whatever it is that we think we have to trust in alongside God. See, most of us think of God like, like this. This flashlight takes two AA batteries. And if we're that flashlight, we would say, God is like one of those AA batteries. He is indispensable to my life. I must have God. I cannot live my life without God. But I've also got this other battery that I also need, something else. In their case, it was their old magic scrolls. Um, it could be any number of things for us. Um, whatever we think will keep us safe, whatever we think will keep us satisfied alongside of God. But if our God is truly greater, if he's as great as Acts 19 says he is, then we should do, like the believers there, whatever it takes to align our lives with him. We must trust in him fully and repent of all of our backup supplemental batteries. Okay. It's interesting. Um, Acts 26 says this, talks about that people should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That repentance is supposed to be accompanied by actions. So in their case, repenting of their magic 
their magic practices, their false spiritual beliefs, um, their repentance took the shape of burning their scrolls, no matter the cost. So, if you repent of your dependence on porn, what would that look like? If you repent of trusting in your money, having enough, what would that look like? If you repent of false systems of worship, like a cult, like they had, what would that look like for you? If you repent of fearing someone's opinion more than you fear the valuation of God, of wanting to please them more than you would care about pleasing God, what does that look like? See, repentance accompanied by actions is the fuel that spreads the word. And if you're not involved in spreading the word, it might do you well to revisit, is there something I need to repent of? Well, it continues in verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. He went back to Jerusalem, Corinthians tell us, to deliver an offering for the poor. And Paul is just this missionary guy. He wants to get to the edge. He wants to get to the great city of Rome. But it says he himself stayed in Asia for a while because about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, she was the great god of, goddess of Asia, of fertility and nature and all things like that. Demetrius made little shrines of her and brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered the craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So evidently this was a lucrative practice, okay? making and selling these little silver shrines so people could worship the goddess Artemis at home. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay. And that's true. Remember, the gospel was spreading all over Asia. Demetrius goes on and said, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay. And you just get a sense that Demetrius is working the crowd. He's riling them up. Okay. Because Artemis was a big deal in their city economically. Um, We've said that her temple was the hub of Ephesian economic life. It was an impressive building, 165 feet by 345 feet. That's bigger than a football field. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, brilliant colors, gold leaf, um, 
animals, veiled head, birds decorating her head and lower body, numerous breasts from her waist to her neck, and it's all symbolic of her protecting and preserving the fertility of all things. And everybody around was a worshiper of Artemis. Um, It was lucrative. I imagine it was also pretty prestigious because the way Demetrius riles them up is he tells them our wealth is at stake and our reputation is at stake. Our greed and our pride are what are causing them to oppose the gospel Paul's preaching. And those two anti-God forces cannot even be allowed a foothold in our life. Paul warns us about the one in 1 Timothy 6. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Isaiah warned about pride. He said, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. These are the two great anti-God forces that drive Demetrius and the silversmiths to oppose the gospel. Is there any pride or any greed that you're letting have a foothold in your life. It will cause you to resist the gospel. And again, the contrast here is striking. The believers sacrifice all their value, millions of dollars worth of scrolls. But Demetrius and the silversmiths cling to their silver temples and oppose what God is doing. Let me share you a a really scary finding that I ran across. It's in a book by James Brian Smith. He talks about that at one time, neurologists scanned the brains of people of faith as they recalled and experienced the times they felt close to God, either in prayer, worship, or solitude. And then they exposed the same people to stained glass, the smell of incense, icons, and other religious images that connected people to God. And the same specific area of the brain called the caudate nucleus lit up in all these people when they felt connected to God. He says the caudate nucleus is not a God spot, as it was called, but it's just the part of our brain that's activated when we feel connected to the divine. And he says it gets even more interesting. The neurologist similarly tested another group, but this time exposed them to material possessions. When they showed them images of products that were tied to cool brands... The exact same area of the brain lit up. The neuroscientists discovered that people who bought certain items experienced the same sensations as those who had a deep religious experience. I don't know all that that means, but it makes me uneasy. Does it make you uneasy? Um, It makes me want to be careful about what I buy just for the thrill of it, just for the prestige of having it. I'll go so far as to say it makes me want to drive my 98 Ranger longer. Okay? Just a little longer, but longer. Okay? If, this, if this is what materialism 
the place it occupies in my mind and heart. Okay. Let me tell you another scary story. As long as I'm telling you scary stories, um, there's a guy named David Henderson. He's writing about America's favorite tourist attraction. It beats out Disney World, draws nearly 10 times as many people at the Grand Canyon. Anybody know what it is? It's the Mall of America outside of Minnesota. Yeah, it has, um, it's a shopping mall. It has 400 stores, an amusement park, a full-size roller coaster. In 2011, some, what some have called the Mecca of materialism drew over 40 million visitors. Disneyland drew just 16 million. The Grand Canyon, 4 million. Are you burning your scrolls or treasuring temples of silver? The contrast is stark here. Well, when the crowd heard Demetrius' words, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The rest of our story says they chanted that for two hours. And so the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So you have this riot, and like all riots, it's a confused mess, right? We see that in the riots that are happening, sadly, in our day. Some are there to protest what they see as a grave injustice. Others are there to loot. Others are there to see the show. We call them the media. And others are there, and they don't know why they're there. They're just there. Something's going on, so they got sucked into it. And that's what's happening in Paul's day. This, this theater that seats like 25,000 people is full of people for all kinds of reasons, but it's a hostile mob. And Paul sees the chaos, and he wants one thing. He wants to go in among the people, okay? He wants to go in among them and tell them about Jesus. Now, why does Paul want to do that? Because he knows God is greater, right? He can face the most dangerous of situations because he knows God is greater, he has seen God use his shop rags to heal and use demons to give a whooping to false prophets, okay? He's willing to go where the opposition is the greatest because he knows God, God is greater. Skip down to the last little paragraph in our passage. Um, they've been chanting, like I said, for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over. And then the town clerk quiets the crowd. Um, he says, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, perhaps a meteor or something like it? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, this is, this is not the expected plot twist, right? Paul and his companions are in the middle of a mob who's shouting praise to the god of Artemis for two hours straight. And who steps up to rescue them? The town clerk, right? He's kind of a new geeky superhero. Clerk man, right? Steps up. And this guy is really wise. I mean, you hear it in his words. He's able to calm this riotous mob just with his words that leads to their dismissal. Um, So... God uses a pagan clerk who is portrayed in these words as a worshiper of Artemis. Um, This is God's sovereign and covert work to protect His workers in order to propel the gospel by the unlikeliest of means. I mean, think about what God has used in these stories. Religious opponents in the synagogue served His purpose. A tyrant who rents out his lecture hall, a sweaty shop rag, a demon-possessed man, an unbelieving clerk. I imagine God could even use a band of believers worshiping at 1212 South Main for his purposes, okay? We talk about unlikely. He might use us. He wants to use us if we believe that God is greater. And whatever opposition we face, our God is greater. The question is, are you in? Or maybe, maybe I could ask it differently. Are you in? Are you willing to follow the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth? God's greatness is not always shown in our protection. Sometimes it's on display most fully in our willingness to suffer. One Christian evacuee from Mosul put it, We lost everything, but Jesus is worth it. Um, I'd like to close and let you just watch something. I'd let you think about what it means to trust a God who is truly great and truly great in his love for those who do not know him. Watch here with me. 